Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Scripture reading this morning will be in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and then 17 through chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew 4, 12. And then 17 through chapter 5, verse 1. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And then verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of healing, of every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. Well, the scriptures tell us that he is king, the king of kings forevermore, and he's is he your king? Is he king of your life? I hope so. It's our prayer that if he's not, that today you'll surrender your lives to the King of kings, Lord of lords. Glad you joined us this morning. I sent out our text this week reminding our church family to read and Preparation for today, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I wanted you to read, and uh, hopefully over the next four or five months, uh, as we teach this um, wonderful text, that you'll read this sermon through from beginning to end often. But in the text, Morgan brought to my attention that I, I said for you to read ahead in preparation for this great sermon. Not meaning my sermon, but Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the one that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago. So I want to make clear my, what my thoughts were on that text. Sometimes we, we don't communicate clearly, do we? I want to encourage you as well as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount to get a notebook, Reagan, and take some notes because... Um, Believe it or not, this won't be the last time you study this passage. And if you take notes, you'll have some, um, some notes to fall back on. I think it's a good um, use of your time, Grayson. Uh, I feel like we need to be good stewards of our time. I feel like we need to take notes and have some way of organizing them so we can get to them later. But the name Sermon on the Mount, it comes from Augustine. He was the first one to give these three chapters that title. And, for 1,600 years, Christians have been referring to this passage as the Sermon on the Mount. And it, this sermon is the most familiar part of Jesus' teaching. 
See if some of these verses sound familiar. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? Earth. Yeah, yeah. You are the salt of the what? Earth. Yeah, and the light of the world. Yeah. So you know, you know, very familiar with this sermon already. What about this one? If if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him what? The other also. Yeah. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus explained to the disciples how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's next? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, you're, you're very familiar with this. And Jesus taught his disciples don't put too much emphasis and investment in temporal things because where your treasure is, that's right. There your heart will be also. So I don't want to jump right into the text uh, this morning. I want to kind of look at the whole, give us an introduction this morning. I think sometimes we, if we don't understand the context, sometimes we can miss the forest for the tree. So let us, um, let's set us up to have a good study over the next few months um, by talking about a few introductory comments. What about the genre? What genre? What type of literature is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's found in Matthew. It's one of the Gospels, right? But it's not an epistle. It's not an, uh, really a narrative text. But this sermon is more like wisdom literature, what you would see in Psalm and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, more so than any epistle or narrative text. It's poetic in nature. So we interpret these scriptures much like we would Proverbs. For instance, look at chapter 6, verse 17, talking about fasting. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So what do we do when we fast, which uh, some of our congregation, some folks in our congregation do, what, what do you do? Are you specifically supposed to anoint your head and wash your face? Well, no, I don't think so. It's poetic in Nature. It means you're not to let others know that you're fasting so you don't seem self-righteous or pious to other people. Or another example, uh, talking about lust, chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. So do we do that literally? Of course not. See, Proverbs are truths stated in extremes. So... We have to remember that as we study. I'll be pointing some of those things out as we come to each verse. But Jesus, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowd, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus is teaching his disciples the 12. Yeah, the 12, but more than that also. See, what Jesus does is he teaches he teaches his disciples the characteristics of a follower of Jesus in the first part of the Beatitudes that we'll see next week. And when he does that, he, he uses certain pronouns. But look in verse 13 and 14. He's speaking to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. So, of course, he's talking to a follower, one of his followers, one of his disciples. But chapter 7 there, it, well, actually in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds. And in chapter 7, when he finishes this sermon, 7, 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And there again, we see the crowd. So who is Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, he's teaching his 12, but he's teaching other followers 
of himself. And, and there's other people as well, other crowds, many of them followers, many of them probably not followers of Jesus. So Jesus, he climbed the mountain and he, he sat down. He sat down because that's the posture, that's their synagogue posture, the, the temple posture, the teaching posture of the, the, the synagogue of the Jews. They didn't like we have here. We have a, we have a, a podium and the, the pastor, preacher, teacher standing up before you. And they, didn't, they wouldn't do that. They would sit. Um, so that was their culture. So he, he sits down, but why does he go up on the mountain? Well, I lived at the end of Candy Lane here. I live up on a hill overlooking the back of my house. I have a deck, and it drops down into a valley, and, and we have a couple neighbors live down there, and it's quite a ways off, um, quite a distance away. But it's interesting. My kids say, hey, I can hear everything they're saying. Our neighbors are saying. They're talking to one another in the backyard. You can hear that, and I'm sure they can hear us as well. Why? Because it's a natural amphitheater. So that's what happens. And you have to remember what's going on before here. Jesus is... is teaching with authority like no one they've ever heard before and he's beginning to do miracles doing things they've never seen done and so large crowds are gathering so he goes up on the mountainside and he sits down and he begins to teach teach the people but what does he teach them it's what we have recorded here in matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 is this one sermon i, I don't think so it's snapshots if you will recorded snapshots of a longer sermon preached by christ this isn't all he said during his teaching time. Now, this probably took place over several days. And, and it's interesting, as, as each topic change occurred, there's, there's time separated with sections of teaching in between. And there are many topics in these three chapters. What we have is just the highlights, cliff notes, if you will. What happens in the cliff notes? How'd they put the cliff notes together? You remember that? You used to read cliff notes, didn't you? What would they do? They would put the most important parts of the book in the cliff notes, and that's what you would get to read. Well, that's what's happened here. Matthew, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's put these snapshots, if you will, of these teaching times uh, in his gospel. And for many of you students, if some of you are reading through the New Testament over, during the quarantine time, we kind of challenge our students and those of us that work with the students to, to read through the New Testament, and, and, and several of them are already finished. But... I'm sure many of you have noticed as you're reading through the Gospels that this story, this teaching time, many of these same verses come up again in Luke chapter 6. In fact, I think it's probably the same event recorded by two different Gospel writers, only it's reported more fully in Matthew. So um, think about this for a second. There's these selective truths given to us uh, by Matthew and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I think what we need to do is we need to pay really close attention to what's, what's given to us here in these chapters. These are the high points. So we should understand them. We should mine them for everything they're worth because these truths are golden. And if you notice at the end of this, end of this teaching time, again, verse 28 and 29, what was the response of the, the crowds? And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And so they, those that heard Jesus teach these truths, they were awestruck. So when we finish this, this sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount, we should be in awe as well, in awe of Jesus' teachings and in awe of Jesus himself. These crowds, they were astonished, and hopefully, the Lord willing, we will be as well. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, 
pastor and, and commentator. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the compacted, congealed theology of Christ, and as such is perhaps the most profound section of the entire New Testament and the whole Bible. So this is an important teaching we have here. This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is found in, God, in the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He has just finished, he was baptized, he, he just finished his time in, in, in being tempted in the desert, and he calls the disciples to himself, and he announces the good news that the kingdom of God, long promised in the Old Testament air, has now come. It's on the threshold, and he himself, Jesus himself, has come to inaugurate the kingdom. Notice with me in chapter 4, verse 12, we're going to flip a little bit here, back and forth, just to kind of set the context. Chapter 4, verse 12 Jesus, it says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now Jesus decided when John had been arrested to start his public ministry. And look at verse 17 is what Chris read for us earlier. From that time, what is that time? That time is the time that John was arrested. Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his message is the same as that of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at verse 23. And he went through all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We see that the gospel of the kingdom mentioned. And we're going to see the, the kingdom of heaven is going to be mentioned throughout this, this teaching time. In fact, the, the word kingdom is mentioned over 50 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Eight times in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's one of the, the key themes in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's interesting, Luke, he doesn't say kingdom of heaven. Luke says kingdom of God, but they, they mean the same thing. Talking about the, the kingdom, right? So Matthew is introducing this theme that will continue throughout the gospel. I mean, you think about the American uh, revolutionaries. They had the, the Declaration of Independence, Karl Marx, he had his Communist Manifesto, but Jesus, he has his Sermon on the Mount declaring what his kingdom is all about, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom comes in several stages. I just want to kind of background information here. It comes in three stages. What is the kingdom of, of heaven? Well, firstly, the kingdom was inaugurated by and manifested in Jesus Christ at his first coming. Jesus had cast out a demon and a Pharisee had told him that he could do so only because he was empowered by a demon. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's, it's beginning and it's, it's, it's on the threshold because the king of the kingdom is here. Or Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, being asked by a Pharisee when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Lo, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God has arrived because the king has arrived. With Jesus' incarnation, the, the new age of the kingdom has dawned. It's here. The rule of God, his kingdom, has broken into history. And then at other times, Jesus spoke of the kingdom as being present in a, a sense broader than his own person. This is the second phase, if you will. See, Christ now reigns in the hearts of his people, those who follow him. His rule is played out through the work of, of, his, of the church, of his disciples, of kingdom citizens. 
And this happens from the time Jesus came and, and, and ushered in the, the kingdom until he returns again the second, <clears throat> the second time. Matthew chapter 13, excuse me. <clears throat> Jesus teaches us many parables about the kingdom. That's what the, the chapter is all about. And one of the parables is the parable of the sower. If you remember, the, the gospel seed is sown on four types of soil, and the, the soil represents um, different types of hearts. And one, soil, or one type of soil represents the heart of the one who repents and believes, producing fruit. So that God's reigning in the heart of those who follow him. The Sermon on the Mount applies to those who are part of the kingdom during the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And although the kingdom of heaven has come, there's still a longing and anticipation of its consummation. This is the, first, the third phase, if you will. During the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of the, this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So we have the kingdom is, has come and it's working itself out spiritually through the, the church. But one day, the kingdom will be consummated when all things will be made right. And we're not only with him in body and spirit, but we like him as well. And that's what we look forward to. A little bit about the kingdom, the theme of Matthew. And we're going to learn a lot more about that in the weeks to come. So what does the Sermon on the Mount teach us? A couple things here just by way of introduction. The first thing is broadly. The first thing, <clears throat> what kingdom citizens look like. That's what it's going to teach us. What kingdom citizens look like. What characteristics one needs to have in order to be a kingdom citizen. And then how should one, once they become a citizen of the kingdom, how then should they live? We see that in the first part of chapter 5, the Beatitudes. We're going to look at that next week. Verses 1 through 6 tells us what uh, someone, the characteristic one must have in order to be a kingdom, be a kingdom citizen. What characteristic one must have in order to be born again. And then the rest of the, the sermon, if you will, it tells us how one who is a part of the kingdom should live. The Beatitudes, they're the attitudes that ought to be. We'll look at that next week. And what uh, we'll see next week is the characteristics of a, a kingdom citizen is they should be poor in spirit. They should be mournful. They should be meek. They should hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's not only a prerequisite to be a part of the kingdom, but it's also an attitude that we should continue to live with and live in. If you will, the 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 Beatitudes, they remind us of the way of salvation. What attitudes one must have in order to be saved and then what attitudes one should have in order to live as a believer. Now, if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, but displays and desires none of these traits found in the Beatitudes, then you might rightly wonder about their salvation because they don't have the characteristics of a kingdom citizen. But because of the high standards set forth in the sermon, if they claim to have mastered these attributes or that's a part of their everyday life and they don't have a problem with any of those, you might want to question their honesty. We'll see that in the weeks to come. So we see what those who are part of the kingdom, what they look like, how they're supposed to live. The second thing we 
we're taught by this sermon is we're instructed that we're to be different, to be set apart. This is one of the themes of the entire Bible. If you look at Genesis through Revelation is God's his purpose is to call out a people for himself and a people that is to be holy, set apart from the world, to belong to him and to obey him. That's what the Lord told the Israelites when he rescued them from, from Egypt. This is your Bible drill text, so get ready, kids, if you, if you, can, uh, if you can find the text before um, all the adults in your household, you, get, you don't have to wash the dishes for the rest of the week, okay? So get ready here. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1 through 4. Leviticus 18. Jenny's already gotten it. All right. Leviticus 18, 1 through 4. And the Lord, you got it? Everybody there? All right. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I, the Lord, your, I am the Lord your God. Because the Lord was their God, they were to be different. But the rest of the Old Testament is incident after pitiful incident of the Israelites wanting to be like the other nations. Let me read this for you. Psalm 106, verses 35, 34 and 35. <clears throat> it says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. That's referring to who? They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. That's talking about the Israelites when they went to the promised land, right? They didn't... They didn't destroy all the inhabitants of the land, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. See, the Israelites wanted to be like the other nations when God wanted them to be set apart. Then what did the Israelites do? They rejected God as their king, and they asked Samuel for a king like the other nations. They liked love for the Lord and desired to be like the other nations. And as a result, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were exiled in 722 and 586 respectively so this is the context of the sermon of the mount Jesus had inaugurated his kingdom and expected his people the church to be set apart from the world so the followers of Christ his disciples are to be different different from who well in Jesus context his disciples were to be different first of all from the secular world from the Gentiles but secondly, they're to be different from the nominal church, if you will, the, uh, the, the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees in order to be part of the kingdom. So for us as a church, we need to be different. We need to be set apart from the secular world, the pagans, those who don't trust God, don't follow God, don't love God, but also we need to be set apart from the nominal church, people who say they're Christians but yet don't live that way. And it's interesting as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's some parallels to the Old Testament. The Sermon on the Mount is similar to what happened on another mountain in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, when Moses went to get the law of God and he brought the law of God to the people of Israel. Both the law in the Old Testament and the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament speak to what God values in his people. Here is how God's people became his people and how they 
should live as God's people. Matthew Henry, he comments that Moses went up on a mountain to receive the law and the Lord descended upon the mountain speaking in thunder and lightning. Now Jesus goes up on the mountain and speaks in a still, small voice. At Sinai, the people were told to keep their distance, remember, from the mountain. But now on the Sermon on the Mount, they're encouraged to draw near to Christ. But I will say this, this is not a, a new law given by Christ. He has not given us a new law, but he's given a, a proper interpretation of the Old Testament law. And one who's been regenerated, one who's a, a kingdom citizen, one who's been born again will live with these, these standards in mind. And I'll say this, as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he sets the bar really high. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount several times, you're, you'll be, your heart will be pricked, you'll be convicted, you'll struggle a little bit, recognizing your, your, your lack, recognize your imperfections, recognize your um, inability to do what God wants you to do. In fact, no, no person has ever lived out the Sermon on the Mount, right? On, on our own. And that leads us to the to the next, the third thing that, that we learn from the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount helps us to see our need for Christ. See, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't encourage you to try to attain righteousness on your own apart from Christ. In fact, it, it condemns those, it condemns people for falling short of God's standard. And it drives them to where? Drives them in desperation to the cross, to Christ. Paul says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we may be justified by faith in Galatians chapter 3. And if that's true of the Old Testament law, how much more true it is of this sermon. Sermon on the Mount, it calls us to live holy and righteous lives that flow from a regenerated heart, one who's been born again. See, one can't earn their own righteousness. In fact, what we'll learn next week in the Beatitudes, they teach us that until one understands they can't earn it, they can't be born again. The attitudes required for salvation and the attitudes of the one who've been saved, are, are we see that taught by, explicitly by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to, as we close, I want to you to think about this. What was your attitude like, your state of mind, when you first repented and believed? Can you think back? Phil, you can't think back that far. It's been so long ago. Think about when you became a believer. Do you remember your state of mind, what you, how you thought about yourself, what you thought about the Lord? I, I would say this is true of all of us. We were humble and we were yielded to the Lord, eager to please Him. We had the joy of the Lord. We experienced the joy of salvation. But some may say now, maybe some of us here, we're not really experiencing that joy like we once did. And maybe we should pray as David did in Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation, uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, as we study through the Sermon on the Mount, my prayer for our church, for you, 
is that we'll, we'll go to the Lord once again. We'll recognize our, how inept we are. We'll, wallow in His grace be thankful for what Christ has done for us as He obeyed everything that He teaches in the sermon right He's our exemplar but my prayer is that you'll once again experience that joy of your salvation that we'll have our minds our thought patterns and our attitudes yielded to the Lord and obedience to Him the sermon, and as we'll study, it points us to Christ. The preacher of this sermon is the sermon. And we're, I'm excited because we're going to be constantly brought into intimate contact with the Savior. So I encourage you to read through this sermon again. We'll start in chapter 5, verse 3, starting next week. But grace to you this week. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are good. Those of us who are believers, we can think back and we can remember our submissive hearts, yielded spirits, as we obeyed you in, by repenting and trusting Christ's work on the cross as our own. We, many of us remember the joy we had, the peace that we experienced of being born again, being set free from the bondage of sin, given the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our, our inheritance, the hope that we had but father many of us some of us maybe have, have, have struggled as of late and we can't say that we're right now experiencing the joy of our salvation father may you teach us from your great sermon may you bring us back again with the right attitude and the right right heart may we once again experience our salvation and seek to please you in every way Father, the standard you set for us is high. And Lord, we can't attain it on our own. We'll fall short and fail miserably. But we're thankful, Father, most of all for Jesus who obeyed you for us. He obeyed in our, on our behalf. Lord, we don't have to focus so much on our failures as much as Jesus' obedience. Thank you for Jesus who died to set us free, who died to bear our wrath. But also thank you for Jesus who lived so we could be righteous in him. Father, for those who are listening and watching that have yet to surrender to you as we talk about the joy of of salvation, they, they can't say they've experienced that. Father, I pray that they would understand that you love them, that you hate sin, and that they are, they're at enmity with you, that they're sinners. Father, help them to understand that because of their sin, they're separated from you. And Lord, when they breathe their last, they'll be separated from you for all eternity in hell. And Father, help them to know that Jesus lived a perfect life for them and died a a terrible death for sinners. Father, I pray that you would grant a sinner 
repentance and faith today. Father, may you do a work in lost people even now. And help your church, Father, this week to obey you. Help us to live pleasing lives and help us yield to you, draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.